Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast born out of a love for God's Word, a hope to find common ground with those who study it, and a desire to outline truth as the Bible tells it. My name is Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. Whether you're someone who shares my biblical understanding or profoundly disagrees with me, whether you're someone who is relatively new to theology or an experienced scholar, or whether you're intentionally searching for truth or you just clicked on this podcast by accident, I sincerely hope and pray that as I unpack some of these biblical topics, you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. I'm not an expert by any means, but I do love the truth of the Bible, and I look forward to exploring some of those truths with you. So let's get started. Hey everybody, this is Micah Gunn, and today on Truth Be Told, we're going to be talking about a question that I've had for some time now, and it's a question that I'd like to bring up to friends or just people whose opinion I really respect because it really just made for great conversation. But after a while of enjoying the conversation and enjoying getting other people's input and opinions, I kind of thought, you know, a question really doesn't have a lot of value unless you find an answer to it. And the one place I could find an answer is when I turn to what God's opinion is. So I turned to the Bible and I did some study and we're going to be looking through the answer that I found from God from the Bible to this question that I've had for a while now. And uh, a little bit of background first. This question that uh, we'll be discussing today first came from a conversation that I had with a friend a while back about Christian involvement in politics. And this question has nothing to do with politics, so if that subject is uninteresting to you or kind of just something that's off-putting, then don't worry. It's not about politics, but this is just how the conversation kind of came about. Uh, we were talking about Christian involvement in politics and not so much Christians voting or whether or not Christians should run for any kind of election, but more we were talking about uh, Christians' vocality in politics uh, with regard to certain policies or political leaders, things like that, and whether or not Christians should be vocal when discussing um, world affairs and how we kind of view the world through that lens of politics. And in my mind, I guess, you know, I've always thought, well, politics are kind of just a discussion of day-to-day life. Like, politics include things like taxes and education, and anytime you discuss those things or the policies in place that kind of govern those things, you're discussing politics. So I've never seen it as an issue. But this person, on the other hand, um, the example they gave me was a minister at a church went and volunteered their time at an abortion clinic and, or sorry, not at an abortion clinic, but to protest an abortion clinic. And while this person agreed that abortion was wrong and that it was totally um, against the Bible's teaching, they thought that this minister was being too political or or too um, invested in world politics. And, um, you know, there's a point to this. I think, you know, there's a benefit to preaching more often thy kingdom come rather than, you know, trying to make this world the perfect thing that we want it to be because this world's not going to be perfect. But still, I mean, if in in my head, I just could not, I couldn't reconcile what this person was saying. You know, I thought good on this person for going and, and uh, preaching against the evils of abortion. Like I, I see that as a wonderful thing and a, um, you know, a very strong um, action on the offense for, you know, standing up for what you believe in. And I I just, I found that to be a great thing. But this person I was discussing it with said that, you know, she thought that it was, 
much too political or much too invested in world affairs and, and she didn't appreciate that so i couldn't i couldn't figure out like do i just not like her stance because i'm too emotional about the topic of abortion or maybe i don't like her stance because i enjoy political conversation a little bit too much or maybe i'm just too invested in the world but i i thought about it for a while and i still could not come to the same conclusion that she did. And this conversation led me to the question we'll be talking about today. So before we get to that question, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and we will begin reading in verse 9. Acts chapter 10 and verse 9. This is the section of scripture where uh, Peter's on the roof and he gets a vision from God. And I know We've kind of bounced around a lot already, you know, talking about politics and conversations and questions and haven't revealed the question. And now we're going to Peter with a vision. And how does this all relate? But just bear with me and we will get to it. And I I do think you'll see the connection. So Acts chapter 10 and verse 9 says, The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So here's the vision. A sheet comes down from heaven. I kind of think of it like a it's tied up at the four corners, so kind of like a a traveler's bag or like a hobo's knapsack or something. And so this big sheet comes down, and it's full of these animals. And it's telling Peter to rise and to kill and to eat these animals. And then verse 14, But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So these are not only just animals in a sheet, they're unclean animals according to the Levitical food laws. And um, Peter, as a Jew, has has kept these his entire life, and he's not going to, you know, break these laws that he's been commanded to follow. So he says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Also, we know from his response that he's talking to God. In verse 13, it says it's a voice, but um, verse 14, Peter refers to that voice as Lord. So he's talking to God, and then in verse 15, the voice or God speaks back to him. It says, and a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, I think it's really interesting that it happens three times. It might seem just kind of a, you know, a poetical license for the writer, or it might just seem like, oh, a, a quaint, you know, round number. But really, um, numbers are really important in Hebrew culture. Because even the even the Hebrew language is a numerical language, with each character in the language having a numerical value assigned to it. So you'll see throughout the, the Bible there are patterns of numbers um, constantly. And some people, I think, take that too far with finding secret messages and things. And, you know, I'm not saying that I'm going to lend any credence to those beliefs. I'm just, uh, that's not really what we're going to be talking about today. But I do think there is significance in numbers. Um, BibleStudy.org, which is a, a Bible study resource that I found very helpful over the years. I, I do think that doing your own study is very important, 
but I think they're a good jumping off point, and they have a study called Meaning of Numbers in the Bible. And in that, um, about the number three, they say, the number three is used 467 times in the Bible. It pictures completeness, though to a lesser degree than seven. So this makes sense, right? You know, you have um, seven days in the week, seven days of creation, and on the seventh day, God rested and it was complete. And so this pattern um, is over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Seven represents completeness, but now we have the precedent that three is also representing completeness as well. And, you know, um, there are examples of this. The elders that sit around God's throne, they say to him, holy, holy, holy representing, you know, complete holiness being ascribed to God. There's also three days and three nights that Jesus was in the tomb and that Jonah was in the belly of the fish. So it's a pattern that happens throughout the Bible. And basically what I'm getting at here is that this is something that when God does this for Peter three times, when he shows him this vision and he tells him this three times, it's something that he really wants to get through to Peter. You do not call unclean what God has purified. And by what happens immediately after, we know that God was instructing Peter on his acceptance of the Gentiles into the faith, with Cornelius being the first Gentile to enter into the church. But today, instead of focusing on that, I'd really like to focus on the command from God not to call unclean what he has purified. So allow me to extrapolate just a little bit on this thought, because this is an absolute from God right? This is not a suggestion. This is not something where he's saying to Peter, you know, maybe you should think about this. This is a command. You do not call common what God has made clean. So could we also say in the same uh, kind of frame of mind that we should not call unholy what God has sanctified? I think that that's, you know, probably accurate. Um, We could also probably say that we should not speak against what God has spoken for. And I think there are a number of times that this is outlined in the Bible as well. Um, David, for example, when he's dealing with King Saul, and King Saul is just constantly after David trying to kill him and persecuting him. And instead, even when David has every opportunity to rise up against Saul, he refuses, saying that he will not lift his hand against the the Lord's anointed. And so, you know, God has spoken for Saul. God has blessed Saul and made him king. And David's response is that if God wants him to not be king anymore, God will take care of that. But it is not for David to lift his hand against what God has ordained. So it's not for David to go against what God has done. So now we begin to have these, these constants that are set. You know, we don't call unclean what God has made clean. We don't raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. We uh, don't speak against what God has spoken. And I think it leads to other natural conclusions about what we should and should not do against what God has done. And I think it can probably be best summed up in the phrase, do not speak, act, or think against God and his will. Let me repeat this for you. Do not speak, act, or think against God and his will. And this leads me to my main question for you today. Thank you so much for your patience, but we're finally at the main question. And that is, if we do not speak against what God says, if we do not act against God's actions, 
and we do not think thoughts against God's thoughts, should we also always allow what God allows? Should we also always allow what God allows? Because we know that God allows evil into the world, right? And we might even be tempted to say that because God allows evil, we should also allow evil. Because, you know, we could make the argument, it's God's fight. It's not our fight. You know, we're not called to um, avenge the cause of goodness over the cause of evil. And, you know, we're not called to rise up and um, overthrow people or anything like that. That's not that's not our calling. But while we're not called to those things, allowing evil to continue while saying or doing nothing against it is exactly what ancient Israel did by allowing pagan tribes into their land. It's also the same thing the church at Thyatira did when they let that woman Jezebel, as Christ refers to her, to remain in their church. Actually, I really like how that uh, section is phrased. If you would turn with me to Revelation 2, Revelation 2, and we'll go to verse 20. Revelation 2 and verse 20, and so Christ is going over his letter to the churches, and, and he's at Thyatira now, and he talks about the good things that they've done, but then he goes ahead and uh, starts talking about some of the things that he has problems with. Um, and so in verse 20 of Revelation 2, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So I, I really love how that's phrased, especially for the purpose of this message today, because he says that they are allowing that woman Jezebel. Allowing her. Well, couldn't you also say that God is allowing her? If God wanted her, you know, dealt with, couldn't God just deal with her? Why does he expect the church there at Thyatira to do something about it if the church is supposed to allow everything that God allows? So I, I think that's just, you know, that's one example. I don't think it um, necessarily proves the point entirely. And obviously this is a, a conversation that has many different facets to it and is very circumstantial. But here is one example where the church is called by Christ to not allow this woman Jezebel to continue corrupting the church. And so I think that's a precedent that's set. And so God does allow evil into the world or into the church, or he even allows evil to tempt us. But what should our response to that evil be? And I think that's the important question. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10, and this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and he'd already written a previous one, uh, 1 Corinthians, obviously, and in that he kind of writes a scathing review of the Corinthian church. And he had had some bad reports, and he... Um, basically was just calling to deal with those bad reports and, and kind of set things straight. And he, he wrote as an authoritarian. He wrote as someone uh, in command and in control and with an authority to tell them what was right and what was wrong that they were doing. And he told them that they needed to shape up. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul um, gets a better report from them saying that they are doing much better now. They've, you know, kind of fixed their backsliding and they've uh, kind of set themselves on the right path. And so that's the 
that's the kind of setting we're in for Second Corinthians. Paul is uh, pleased with the report he's heard from them, and he wants to visit them soon. And so this is what he says to them in Second Corinthians 10, starting in verse 2. He says, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So Paul here is saying, when I get there, I really don't want to have to come and speak harshly to you again. I don't want to have to set the record straight. I don't want to have to correct you. I'd really like to come and worship with you and fellowship with you in unity. And I don't want to have to play you know, this authority card over you again. So he doesn't want to have to speak boldly to them. But he says he is going to speak boldly against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, who is that? I think it could be uh, two different people, um, or two different groups of people, rather. It could be people outside of the church who witnessed the backslide of the Corinthian church and now has a um, a poor understanding of what the church is and thinks um, kind of gives it a bad reputation. Or it could be people still within the Corinthian church that are still continuing to act poorly and so give the Corinthian church a poor reputation. I think it could be either of these people, either external uh, external citizens in the area, or it could be internal members of the church. And But either way, Paul says he will speak boldly. He will not allow that reputation to continue. He's not going to let people think that the church walks according to the flesh. So continuing on there, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So that's kind of a kind of a lot a lot to process there. Paul, you know, writes long sentences and kind of you have to break it up into little chunks to kind of um, follow him at least I do anyways I, I kind of have a hard time following him sometimes but this is a very famous scripture um, and I think it's famous especially amongst the Christian community because it's um, very hard-hitting against evil it's not very tolerant you know he, he is not tolerating the evil that he's seen from the Corinthian church and so especially this the last section there. But let's go through this um, just kind of verse by verse and see what Paul's talking about here. So first he starts talking about the weapons of our warfare not being carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And then he talks about casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And I think here, Paul is talking, I, I think in this scripture, we have a tendency to look at it as if Paul is discussing internal spiritual battles that we all find ourselves having. You know, we're all tempted to sin. We all um, do live in the flesh, though we strive to not walk according to it. And I think we, we look at this and we say, yeah, Paul is talking about all of our individual internal struggle with sin. And I think that that does this scripture a disservice. I think it narrows the focus too much. While I do think Paul is talking about that, I don't think he is only talking about that. I believe that Paul here is talking about external things and external spiritual warfare that we also need to be waging constantly. And here's here's kind of my justification for that. Because when he talks about the weapons of our warfare, pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments, 
Well, arguments can't be done just with one person. Arguments are things that are between people, right? Where we're arguing over what truth is. And he's saying the, the weapons of our warfare cast down those arguments. Well, that is that is external spiritual warfare. When we're having you know these debates or discussions with people outside of the faith, trying to contend for our faith, you know that is a that is a type of spiritual warfare that we need to be fighting. That it, it's not just within our own minds, like oh, I'm I'm fighting within my own self. So I think Paul really is talking about two kinds of spiritual warfare here, and I think that that shows it. Um, and he says, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And now this could obviously be, you know, sources of pride in our own lives. We all have, um, you know, we have tendencies to get puffed up when we learn new things. And like, that's something we all struggle with. Like human pride is probably the one common thing that every human being struggles with. So I'm not saying that we don't have to fight internally against things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. But I also think this absolutely includes external sources of spiritual warfare as well. Because who else do we know that exalts himself against God or against the knowledge of God? Satan. And all of the power that Satan has, everything that Satan stands for is in direct contrast to God and the knowledge of God and the way of God. And yes, Satan does work in our minds when we allow him, and he can work in our church when we allow him, and he does work in our nation when we allow him, in the world when we allow him. So I I do think that Paul here is talking about spiritual warfare that needs to be done internally, but I think if we stop there and only fight spiritual warfare internally, we are going to be allowing spiritual warfare to overcome us in a lot of other battlefields. And so this is the person that God has called you to be against evil. Paul is outlining here, not only the person that God wants us to be against evil, he's outlining the church that God wants us to be against evil. And this last part here of the verse as well, um, I think in the beginning where he's talking about arguments and um, tearing down strongholds and things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, Paul is kind of focusing on Uh, external sources of spiritual warfare, and then he brings it into, you know, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I think that is definitely um, strictly an internal battle because, you know, your thoughts are your own. But then this last part, I think, nicely ties all of that together because it says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So obviously, When we are completely unified with Christ, when we are completely at one with God, and we are completely obedient to him, we are rejecting disobedience to him. We are no longer allowing disobedience. So in that sense, we're punishing disobedience once we become obedient in full. But also, there's going to come a time where... Christ is also not going to allow disobedience. God the Father is not going to allow disobedience. It's not going to be tolerated anymore. And I know that sounds harsh maybe to people in the world that don't understand, um, you know, true tolerance because we kind of have this skewed version of what tolerance is where um, we kind of wrap it up with love. Like we act like tolerance and love are uh, synonymous and that's just not true. I I personally think the reason we do this is because we don't enjoy pointing out sin 
or wrongdoing. We don't often like to feel that discomfort of standing in direct contrast to the world. So we kind of try and go with the flow as often as we can. And maybe it's because we don't like sin being pointed out when we do it. You know, that's also uncomfortable. So instead we just say, well, we will tolerate that person's sin. And because I'm being tolerant, I'm acting in love. And we can kind of pat ourselves on the back instead of, you know, following what we're supposed to do, which is calling a spade a spade and not allowing sin. So the world has that really messed up. And I think the world probably wouldn't appreciate this scripture that that Paul writes because it is not a very tolerant scripture because disobedience is going to be punished once obedience to Christ is ultimately 100% fulfilled. And, you know, there's even other examples of this authority given to us by God to fight against evil or to not allow evil. Uh, One example would be in Luke 10. If you would turn there, uh, if you're following with me, Luke chapter 10, and uh, we'll start in verse 19. And this is the uh, section of scripture where um, Jesus sends out 70 disciples and he asks them to preach and to, you know, kind of spread the news, spread the gospel message of the kingdom of God and to proclaim Jesus Christ as well. And here in this section, the 70 um, that are sent out return and their report is here in Luke chapter 10. So Luke chapter 10, we'll, we'll start reading in verse 17. It says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so they're just astonished. You know, they, they went out and they were able to do all these awesome uh, miracles by casting out these demons. And, you know, up until that point in this very um, magic and spirit-centric Uh, time period and culture, these demons were a huge plague on society. And so for these men to have power over them, I mean, read any story where Jesus casts out demons and how amazed the multitudes are, how they flock to Jesus. And obviously, you know, something's very special about him. But now just these mere men are able to do it as well. And they're just astonished. So Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I love that they give credit to Christ here as well. And in verse 18, it's so funny because it's kind of, um, it almost reminds me, reminds me of like a, like a flex, you know, all like a flex from God. Although, you know, Christ isn't embellishing here. This is, this is just truth. But, uh, verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So it's just a statement of fact. Like, of course you, I'm able to give you authority over them because I was there, you know, to cast them out in the first place. I was there in the beginning before them even. And so, yes, Christ has absolute authority over these, these demons. But, but then verse 19 shows what he can do with that authority because he says, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is such a, a an amazing piece of scripture that would probably just get read as like an interesting story. And don't get me wrong, it is an interesting story, but the theology behind this is so profound. Because, you know, Christ not only has this authority over demons, he also has so much authority over them that he can grant it to people who follow him. And I love the word it uses there. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. This is an offensive move. This is not, 
Christ giving authority to his disciples to, you know, endure whatever hardships come from evil spirits. This is not, you know, Christ saying, like, I'll give you strength to just kind of muddle your way through. He's saying he's giving them authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. That is such a, just an amazing thing. And even, you know, it it reminds me of a a Matthew 16 verse when, when Christ is talking to his disciples and he specifically is talking to Peter and about the church that is going to be built. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we can look at this verse even and say like, yeah, that's, that's great. Like we're not going to be overcome by hell. But if you look at how that verse is phrased, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, in those ancient cities, the gates were not the things that attacked. The gates were the things that were being attacked. So I used to read that verse and say like, yeah, that's amazing. We're not going to be overcome by evil. And, you know, hell is not going to um, destroy the church. Death is not going to destroy the church. Christ is always the head of his church and he's going to keep it going. But it's not just, you know, strength to endure what gets thrown at us as a church. It is strength to actually take down the gates of hell. Because we are on the offensive. We should be a church on the offensive against death and against evil and against corruption. And when we follow Christ, that is really the church that we will be. Like it's a natural byproduct of that. Just following Christ who, you know, conquered death and conquered the world um, in his own way, obviously not in a militaristic way, but following Christ will inevitably net that outcome. We will become an offensive church against evil. And I just think that is, that is so encouraging. So if you would head back to uh, Luke chapter 10, and we'll, we'll keep uh, kind of fleshing out this verse here where Christ is talking to his disciples that just returned. And so we see that, you know, Christ can give authority to his disciples over these unclean and harmful spirits. But then uh, continuing on in verse 20, after he gives him authority over you know, serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. He says this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And this is, I think, an interesting um, kind of a shot of reality to the disciples as well, because he's saying, you know, yes, it's wonderful to rejoice that we have authority over evil, and we can, you know, through Christ, have the tools or as Paul would put it, the weapons of warfare to actively fight uh, fight this spiritual warfare against evil and against corruption. But also, you know, not only do we recognize that Christ gives us that authority, but we're not rejoicing because we have some power. You know, we're not rejoicing because now I have some authority or some power over an unclean spirit, or, you know, I'm just so much better than this corrupt person or ideology or whatever. It's not about anything that exalts us over anything else. Yes, we should rejoice that corruption is overthrown, or we should rejoice when evil is cast out and that good prevails. That is a wonderful thing to rejoice about. But it's not rejoicing because, you know, we are doing something just by not allowing evil. It's not about that at all. We're rejoicing because we're becoming one with God's will to not allow that evil. 
because sometimes we can kind of make the mistake that when we, you know, when we hear the phrase, should we always allow what God allows? Just because of the phrasing of that question, it seems like, well, to be in tune with what God wants, we should allow what God allows. But right here, you know, we are being shown an example that we should not allow something just because God allows it. You know, Jesus Christ gave authority to his disciples to go cast out demons. Does that mean that Christ couldn't have done it? Absolutely not. It wasn't that, you know, Christ was just out of range or Christ, you know, didn't have enough service or direct contact with the Father in order to cast out these demons. With one word or one thought, every demon on earth would have been in instant uh, subjection to anything he had them or he had to say to them any order he would give them they would have had to follow it immediately he allowed demons to be present and to be working so that he could give authority to his disciples so that they would not allow that evil to continue so christ had an ultimate goal or an ultimate purpose for allowing that evil but he expected that the disciples would go out and continue to fight against that same evil. So just because God allows it does not mean he doesn't want us to be in all ways against it. And I think the question that comes next is how? If we are not supposed to always allow what God allows, how do we appropriately do that? How do we appropriately fight or resist evil? And I think the answer can be best seen in John chapter 1. So if you would turn over there, John chapter 1, we'll begin reading right in verse 1, an incredibly famous scripture. And I think Christ gives us an example and, you know, a, a precedent to show us how we can appropriately not allow something that God allows. So John chapter 1 in verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. This is talking about Christ. This is one of the biggest uh, scriptures referencing, um, you know, the divinity of Christ or the eternal nature of Christ is uh, John chapter 1. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. This next part is so important. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I think it is so incredible, the poetry of that verse. You know, thousands of years ago, God inspired his disciples to write this down, and, you know, in a completely different language than we're speaking right now in English, and still it translated over years and years and years, and still just sounds profound and poetic and beautiful. I think that's just honestly nothing short of a miracle but this last section in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it did you catch that part there the light shines so that light which is the light of men is currently shining or it should be currently shining should be shining in us as individuals, but also should be shining in us as a collective body, as a church, and as a church that Christ claims as his own, as a church that Christ leads right now, today. 
And I love that word shines. You know, it, it is in there intentionally. It is not just a typo. The word is actually shines. And the Greek word, uh, when you transliterate it, is P-H-A-I-N-E-I. I guess the best pronunciation I can think of would be phanei. But it is a present indicative active word. It's a verb. It's not, you know, it is not shined or shown. It is shines currently. And I think that's just amazing because it shows that, you know, the light did not go out when Christ was crucified. Or, you know, the light did not go out when all of the apostles died. And the light did not go out in those dark ages of the church where, you know, people were scattered all over the place and only pieces of truth were hidden here and there. The light did not die. It is shining right now. It is shining or should be shining currently. And I just think that is so encouraging. So what does this mean? God allows darkness into the world so that his purposes can be fulfilled. But should we also always allow darkness and evil? Absolutely not. Because in us individually and in this church that Christ claims as his own, there should be light. There needs to be light. And where there is light, darkness is never allowed.